Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and join us for our weekly conversations about tech news. Uh, Rist is getting into SD-WAN. Ariaka is going after small and medium enterprises. Avaya is going bankrupt. We've also got an HPE acquisition, space news, and more. Uh, Response to this week by Palo Alto Networks. Join Palo Alto Networks for a virtual event where they'll unveil what's next in SASE with the latest innovations in Prisma SASE, ZTNA 2.0, and SD-WAN. See how these new capabilities help your customers consolidate multiple point products into a single platform to reduce TCO. Learn how they will also help automate costly and complex IT operations and stop zero-day threats in real time. You can sign up at start.paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy dash signature dash moment dash 2023, or just see the link in the show notes that accompany this episode. Uh, and also stay tuned after the news for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation also with Palo Alto Networks about Palo Alto's Secure Access Service Edge or SASE offering. It integrates SD-WAN with cloud-delivered security, and they're going to make the argument for, for why you might want to consider a single vendor SASE option. Uh, before we get to the news, just a quick FU or follow-up. Uh, in a recent Network Break episode, I mentioned thousands of lobbyists like lemurs poking their heads up out of their holes. Uh, this listener wrote in to say, I think you were thinking of meerkats because lemurs are arboreal. That is absolutely correct. I was thinking of meerkats. I got it wrong. So uh, thank you for keeping me honest on my zoology. Just shows you that follow-up comes in all forms, right? All forms. <laughs> Props to our audience members for being smart enough to know the difference between a meerkat and a lemur and what arboreal means. It's just like... Definitely top marks for throwing arboreal in there. Yeah, tip of the hat. <laughs> tip of the hat. <laughs> and he also gives you kudos for fitting the mention of lemurs into the podcast. I mean, is that going to be a, is that a new thing where we try and find a word <laughs> to come into it? <laughs> Some sort of arcane word that we try and get into the show? I guess so. <laughs> Easter eggs, a little Easter, Easter eggs. That's what we need, more of those. More Easter eggs. All right, we got a lot of news, so let's dive in. First, Arista is entering the SD-WAN market with the launch of two hardware routers that can target large enterprises. It's called the WAN routing system. Arista says this hardware can be used for traditional routing at remote branch and edge sites or deployed as SD-WAN gateways with all the features you'd expect, so things like support for multiple links, including MPLS, internet, and LTE, app identification, and the ability to direct traffic according to app requirements, business policies, and link performance. Finally, right? Finally. <laughs> Finally. How often yes. have we said, when is Arista going to enter the WAN? Or, you know, Arista feels like it's slow to the market here. I think uh, the overriding issue here is the business issue, which is that Arista is largely seen by shareholders and analysts as being overly reliant for revenue on the on just a handful of cloud providers, literally three. Yes. And something like 30 to 40% of its revenue. And that's sort of led to a bit of a push for them to get serious about getting into the enterprise. That's my sense of this. And we've seen them get into, obviously, the data center because that was a quick repurpose. That's where they started. They've moved into the campus to, you know, with Wi-Fi and campus switching and then obviously the campus uh, overlay uh, SDN, you know, the software that manages the overlay. So if you want to think about it in that context and say this is finally the WAN component with just two router models <laughs> instead of Cisco's 455 or something, you know, some <laughs> Rob Dignaggy variations of models. Now, Cisco is doing different things with their with their product portfolio. There does make sense in the context of what they're doing and how they approach the market. But I think Arista is going to keep it simple and say, you know, one router fits all is my sense. But you you went to the briefing and you chatted to them. What, what other things have they got going on? 
Yeah, Ethan Banks and I both went to the briefing and we actually recorded a separate briefings and brief podcast on our perceptions of the briefing, which will be published later today as well, if you want to check that out. But uh, I'll give you the the summary here. Um, yeah, it, because it's Arista, they're uh, running the routing platforms on EOS, which you would expect. Uh, and it's managed by Cloud Vision, which is their you know management and uh, orchestration layer. Um, they are definitely targeting their largest existing customers out of the gate. So folks who are already bought into EOS and Cloud Vision, presumably in the data center, maybe in the campus, uh, they want to keep those customers on the farm. So now there's a, uh, a SD-WAN option for them. Um, they're also partnering with Zscaler. If you want to direct traffic to a cloud-delivered security service, they say more partnerships are coming. Um, they, As you mentioned, it's just two routers. They don't have a gateway targeted at smaller sites, at least not yet, which seems mm -hmm. to me like a missed opportunity, particularly, as you mentioned, they are coming to this market very late. There's mm -hmm. lots of competitors out there. Uh, their way into SD-WAN, I think, is probably through replacing existing competitors. But if you don't have a good portfolio of options for the different size branches, you, you kind of, I think, are leaving some deals on the table. Yeah, well, we'll talk more about this. Uh, we've got some news about Ariaka, but I think most common these days for branded vendors like Arista and Cisco and so forth to start at the top of the market and then reach down. So rather than in the old days, they started in the small and then scaled up. Mm -hmm. In the current market, everything's pretty easy. Everything's made out of commodity hardware. The software is mostly the same. So there's nothing in this software that's too new or fresh. They're doing MPLS. They're doing standard SASE overlays. They're using path computation, PCE type things to dynamic do the path selection if you're using the cloud vision. You've got all of your heritage networking features if you want those. You know, EOS is the same operating system that they've been using in the data center for the last 20 years. Um and of course, Arista has been hugely successful, so they're instantly credible here. Like if you consider some of the startups who are doing various operating systems or the white box NOSes, Arista's mm -hmm. really shown that they've got the chops to make this happen. So they do have credibility when they make something like this, but they are relying on third parties for SASE and zero trust. And if there's one thing that I've been seeing is that companies don't want third parties for that. They want the product to be bundled. If yep. you look at the success of Fortinet and Palo, with a very easy, simple to use bundling of SASE security, zero trust, digital experience monitoring in that whole SD-WAN, I think Arista's not going to be as successful at this as it, think, as it would like to be because there's going to be a lot of resistance. Yeah, that's. I feel very similar in that SD-WAN, as we like to talk about, is is now less a product category, more just a feature of a broader set mm -hmm. that does start is now starting to include cloud security services. And Arista does not have a story there for that, uh, and probably won't. I can't. I don't see them building out, you know, pops with firewall, IPS, all that stuff. So they're going to have to rely on partners, and that's not the end of the world. Uh, lots of other people are doing that as well, um, and there's a robust ecosystem for that. But again, when you're coming late to the market and you're looking to displace your competitors, you've got to give folks a reason uh, to do that. And it can't just be, well, our operating system is the best operating system. Yeah, I think the days with the operating system mattering is your, or being core to success is fading. It's really about cloud vision in, in Arista's case or the SDN controller that sits over the top. And we don't, once a company has, you know, your software defined controller, they can start to talk about, um, you know, you don't really see what's happening. And Cloud Vision does all of that. It does the path analysis. It does the path selection, forwards flows, it routes the flows. I'm sure you can go, you know, create all this using the CLI, be it a legacy type approach to that. But I don't think <laughs> most customers would go down that path. 
Well, here's the th- I think Arista, because of its heritage, uh, really appeals to you know engineering focused, engineering heavy organizations that like to get into the guts and the weeds and, and mm-hmm. tinker and program and nerd knob to their heart's content. And Arista is great for that. They do also have cloud vision, so you can have a, a slightly more easier management interface. They're collecting all the telemetry for you and, and showing it to you in nice graphs and stuff. So that's good. Mm-hmm. But again, the SD-WAN market, what a lot of folks are looking for, particularly in the mid-range, is I need it to be easy. I need it to be secure. I want and one I don't supplier. Really, I don't want to and have I to want deal one. with Exactly. Yeah. And I don't want to have to go out and buy a separate firewall and IPS. I want some of that either on the box itself, which Arista doesn't have, mm. or I want to get it in the cloud. So Yeah. One throat to choke. Sort of thing. Or hand to shake, yes. Now it, it is interesting. The the market capitalization of Zscaler is sixteen billion today. Their mm-hmm. share price is down fifty percent year over year. They're one of the overhyped uh startups that got very big boosts during the pandemic. The share price went up to almost $350 and it's now down towards the $100 mark. There's really nothing in Zscaler that can't be duplicated by anybody else. If that was true, Palo Alto and Fortinet wouldn't have been able to. Uh, Arista's got a market capitalization of $52 billion. Could they buy Zscaler? Hmm, maybe. Be a big maybe. reach. It's not normally maybe. something Arista would do, but they could. But, uh, you know, that would require them to place a huge bet on SD-WAN or SASE as a, as a, as a category. Yeah. And that's the thing you mentioned earlier, like, uh, you know, Arista is very exposed to the hyperscalers in terms of where they're getting their living from and have tried, are trying to diversify. And the enterprise is one of the ways they're doing it. You mentioned they acquired a, a, a Wyland company a while back. But the thing is, I feel like we never hear from Arista. You know, they don't come and talk to us about, you know, the latest, you know, APs no. and stuff and what they're doing in the campus. It feels like it's, so I'm curious, if they're going to be serious about the enterprise, I think SD-WAN is a good way to get in, but they've got to really be serious about it and, and keep iterating and keep yeah. giving folks a reason to come to them. And right now, out of the gate, I feel like... Mm. And if you're going to come in at the top of the market with these very large physical boxes... Right. And selling to the top end of the market, uh, is it? Does it make sense or not? I don't know. So I do think Arista is late, as we already have said before. And they're not getting all the features together. I don't, you know, for $16 billion to buy Zscaler, could they just go and build one of these for a lot less? I think they could. It's only a billion yeah, or so to build out, copy that functionality and build it out. Yep. And, you know, there'd be a lot of investment ongoing to build out the pops and so forth, but it wouldn't take long, especially in a down market. There's plenty of developers out there. So, hmm. Interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. But I like the, there's nothing wrong with this, this offering. They do already support in the software, the idea of transit hubs. So you can send your traffic into the Equinix network and use them as a backbone bypass. Right. It supports hybrid cloud, so they're able to do tunneling. Uh, I imagine you can get EOS appliances that run inside of the, the cloud in, providers. In the public clouds, yes, you can. Yeah. Yep. So you're going to be able to build hybrid clouds. You don't need to go out to someone like an Aviatrix or an Alkira to get basic connectivity to, to off-prem clouds. Um, you can also go into you know various cloud-neutral facilities and get the, the backbone bypass stuff. Um, so, but as I said, my main concern here is that there's no small edge. There's no support for branches here. These are big, heavy boxes that look kind of expensive to me. Well, so, in the briefing, Ethan mentioned that this looks like a spendy box and the rest of the, the rest of folks were like, yeah, they, they kind of are. <laughs> yeah. So where's your branch, so, right? So if you're going to put in a branch that's got 10 to a hundred people, you don't want to buy a box that's one eye, you know, one eye you big and it's going to cost you, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000. Right. Yeah. So I agree with you. Out of the gate, Arista immediately credible in the market because of their software and hardware quality. Mm. Uh, we know they can deliver on the, on the products they're going to deliver. The question is, are they really here to stick with this market and help grow it? Uh, and I think that remains to be seen. 
Yeah, I also think that what we generally see is Arista moves into the market fairly steadily and deliberately. So right. it would also not be unfair to say uh, that Arista tends to fix this over time. So true, true. What Arista is saying is we're in the WAN, come and talk to us. <laughs> you know, right, right. Strangely enough. Uh, and, you know, you need to, uh, maybe that's the play here. They're just going to, this is the first point in, uh, get started with that and see how you go. All right. Well, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it for yourself. We'll move on. Uh, moving on to Ariaka. They provide SD-WAN and SASE as a managed service. They're rolling out a managed service option aimed at small and medium enterprises. It includes uh, network security, application optimization, and multi-cloud connectivity. And they're saying that pricing starts at $150 per site. Yeah, I actually think this is a bad move for Ariarch. It's probably a signal that they're struggling in the SD-WAN SASE market to me. Hmm. You don't really want to be selling to SME um, unless you feel like your high-end market or your mid-market is saturated. Selling to SMEs is expensive. You've got to convince a lot of you know, small resellers that reselling Ariarch's product is a good idea. That's not easily to do. Even if you're leaning into an existing reseller channel, I mean, it's own, their reseller channel is only a couple of years old. So mm-hmm. I think this is a sign that Ariaka feels like we are stagnant in our core market and we need to grow. And the only place that we could, they can grow is down into the SME. And that's possibly not a good sign. I'd need to talk to them to find out if that's true or not, though. Yeah, I guess I disagree. I I see SMEs being a big market. Uh, they already have the channel set up so they can leverage that. Uh, I think a lot of SMEs are looking for help uh, when it comes to networking and security. So rocking up with a managed service that gives you that SD-WAN and some cloud-delivered security services is good. Although, And the price point seems good, although I will say I'm, I'm very curious what kind of restrictions and limitations there are on services and capabilities mm. and throughput because 150 bucks is so cheap. Like, Does that include CP? I want to see more details. There weren't any in the press release and we didn't have time yeah. to get a is briefing. Per year, so, per month? <laughs> I'm assuming per month. Per minute? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do, I, there are lots of potential customers they could bring on board. Yeah. They are launch, coming in with an attractive price point. So I I think it makes sense to me. I, though, although I do take your point that it, it's yeah. also maybe a signal that they're getting less traction with larger customers. Yeah, you generally don't come down market unless you're saturated in, the, in your other markets as a rough rule of thumb. I um, guess, although I will say, you know, Meraki also came out targeting SMEs and they did great. So there's juice there. Well, that's all Meraki does. It doesn't do anything else. So it, it just avoided the whole top end of the enterprise. Uh, true, but then they got bought by Cisco, which can take care of that for them. So That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, even when they were Meraki, they just said no. But they're also built totally around a sales motion, which is targeting SMEs and mid-market. So whereas Ariaka has always been at the top end trying to sell to the premium market. True. So there's a there's True. a culture clash there that concerns me a little. Mm, good points. All right, uh, moving on, but sticking with SASE, the Delora Group says the SASE market took in $6 billion in revenue worldwide in 2022. It's not a huge top line number given all the attention being poured into this space, including from us. Uh, I think the big number to uh, focus on is the year over year growth. Delora says it's 34% year over year. And I think that probably explains the vendor interest in the space. Yeah, which is kind of less than what we previously predicted. Do you remember five years ago that the SASE market was going to, SD-WAN market was going to be, I remember numbers of 20 to 30 billion by 2023. Mm-hmm. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? I do, like, yeah. We'd be sitting in conferences in Las Vegas back in the olden days and there'd be this, you know, so much hype and, and whatever. And 10 years later, like we started talking about it in 2014, 12, so 2012, SD-WAN. Mm-hmm. So like we're into sort of like the ninth or 10th year of SD-WAN and we're, only six billion. 
Well, that's Across Sassy the, specifically, yeah. not just mm. SD-WAN. So. Well, keep in mind that Sassy isn't just SD-WAN. It's also all of the security functions, right? It's the content scanning, the logging. So that would actually suggest that that entire market is actually quite small. That's a, like a big chunk of the security market and a big chunk of the WAN market jammed together for just very little money. It must be right. very few customers, I think. So... Yeah, Delar also identifies more than 30 vendors in the space, so lots of people chasing a small pie. But again, I think it's all about the potential for growth there. Yeah, but you also highlighted that Cisco leads with 70% of revenue and Zscale are 1% behind. That's not numbers that I've heard. I wonder how they classify SASE, because that feels weird. Cisco is not a major player in the SASE market, as far as I'm aware. And Zscale is also somewhat of a marginal player as compared to, say, Palo or Fortinet or you know one of the security vendors who are doing it. Much but Zscaler has been doing it for years and years and years yeah. before we even had Sassy, so they've had time to, to build up that that. I guess if you take share. Cisco's umbrella and all of that content services that they acquired a decade ago plus, then right. maybe, but that's not Sassy. That's just, you know. Yeah, I'm curious about how Delora was coming to the conclusion that Cisco is has a Sassy thing that they can identify. Uh, I'd like yeah, to if see. you have a hosted service doing Sassy tech, Sassy features, that's not Sassy. That's not, you know. Arguably, the Cisco's SD-WAN is still not tightly integrated. It still has three or four different SD-WAN strategies, and they're all standalone. They're not integrated with the SASE. You still have to piecemeal assemble the pieces that you want, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Feels wrong. Too many unanswered questions, yeah. Too many unanswered questions, more than we can get from a press release. And again, we didn't have time to get a, a deeper briefing. Maybe we'll go back to this one and, and see if we can shake some more stuff out. Well, people can send us their, their FU and tell us what they think if they want to. <laughs> Please do. Back at pushes.net slash FU. We don't just talk about meerkats here on Network Break. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks uh, and their Prisma Sassy. 2023 is a year when companies will need to do more with less as business uh, grapple with economic uncertainty. It's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. You can join Palo Alto Networks for a virtual event this April where they'll unveil what's next in Sassy with the latest innovations in Prisma Sassy, ZTNA 2.0, and SD-WAN. You can see how these new capabilities help you consolidate multiple point products into a single platform to reduce TCO and learn how they'll help automate costly and complex IT operations and stop zero-day threats in real time. See how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and return on investment. Sign up at start.paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy-signature-moment-2023 or see the link in the show notes for this podcast. Uh, thanks, Palo Alto, for being a sponsor. We'll move on. HPE continues its acquisitions role with the purchase of OpsRamp. This is an IT operations management company. They can monitor, observe, automate, and manage multi-cloud infrastructure, including network, storage, VMs, and containers. Yeah, so we've talked before about HPE GreenLake and HP's Emerald solution, um, which is this combination of trying to build an on-premise cloud capability. And HPE is very much pitching it as a managed service. It's not like you buy servers and you buy, you know, buy some VMware and you buy some you know, and try and weld it all together. This is HPE saying, we're going to sell you VMs by the rental. If you want to have, um, you know, a database, we'll sell you a database as a service, just like roughly approximate to what you would get in an off-prem cloud. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a significant demand for this. It's a, probably a smart move. It definitely differentiates HPE from Dell and Cisco, who increasingly don't have that unified capability. They're sort of saying, well, we've got all the pieces. You could just put them together yourself and we'll sell you a license for what you only need. Whereas HP is sort of all in and saying, if you buy this bundle, we'll rent it to you at a, you know, you know, instead of buy once, cry once, you can buy it, you know, buy per minute and cry every minute sort of thing, right? 
<laughs> is that a good thing? <laughs> wow, that's my that's, that's yeah, my latest need to work on, on that formulation. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> buy once, cry once. If you pay monthly, you cry monthly. Sort of thing. So uh, I see this as part of that, and I think what HP is reaching for here is much more of this operational management of the infrastructure they put on prem. Because I think what's happening up until now is customers are putting this. HP GreenLake on site and then trying to weld it into their existing operational procedures, which they may or may not have. And IT operations management is, you know, combining the technical expertise, the processes, strategic thinking. You've got to be able to say, this is what the business is. We want to operate this differently. We want to be able to upgrade the firmware in the right. We want some automation capability. We need some observability functions. And this feels like HP is rounding that out. Does that, do I paint a fair picture there? I mean, it sounds like to me that they know that they're trying to integrate a whole bunch of different hardware and software elements across the technology stack, and you need to be able to get visibility into everything that's going on in those stacks, manage it and monitor it, automate it. If you can kind of get you know one place to do all that, then sure. I, I, mm-hmm. I feel like, though, that HP has bought companies that proposed uh, purported to do this already. So yeah. I don't know if there's capabilities here they feel like is rounding out the portfolio. Um, but I, I feel like this is a, a space that HP already should be in if it wasn't already. Well, I, I think whether it's, a, whether it's bolstering an existing product, which is hard to know because there's so much in HP's GreenLake that it's very difficult to work your way through it. Um, I feel like there's pieces of that puzzle that are missing, like intelligent automation. And the big one about this is AI-driven event management. So maybe they only want one part. They didn't mention a price, so it's not very high if it is, you know, whatever they bought it for. It's not significant enough to affect their revenue to declare it to the SEC. So maybe they didn't pay much and they got a specific feature instead of the whole product. Although HP was an investor in OpsRamp before uh, they got bought, um, OpsRamp raised a total of $57.5 million, uh, yeah. from three investors that include HPE. So it, I, I'm assuming they paid a, a significant chunk. Or not. Right now, startups are losing value after the trouble at Silicon Valley Bank. So could be maybe right. they picked it up on the cheap. The price just got too good. Could be, could be. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely yeah. possible. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on, uh, Google has announced it's discontinuing its Glass Enterprise headset. They aim to bring augmented reality and hands-free communication to glasses for industrial and business use cases. Google says it will support existing customers until September 2023, uh, and glasses will continue to work after September, but Google is no longer going to provide software updates or fix broken products. This is going to be distressing for some people. Google Glass Enterprise was actually used in a number of niche applications. So uh, there was some hospital surgical stuff where they would put stuff on. There's been certain uh, industrial applications where people were wearing them and they had applications custom developed for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously back in the days when Google Glass was released and everybody was like, ooh, ah, and then it quickly descended into a bun fight because it was just such a massive privacy thing. People right. were walking around with Google Glasses recording everything that they did um, the without any care. The factor for, was high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, they were re- and they were often really rude. You'd say like, please turn your glasses off. I don't like being surveilled. And they go, no, it's my right to take pictures of whoever I like. <laughs> you know, a lot yeah. of the glass holes was what we actually called them. Yes. Uh, if you remember that. So I do. Um, I do feel like on one hand, this was probably badly done right from the start. I think that back in the days when Google was a, you know, we can play with technology and give it a go and suck it and see, and it should be great. It should be great. Right. And it wasn't. So the market wasn't ready for it. And the hardware was awful. It was absolute junk. <laughs> Honestly, it was yeah. so bad and the software was pretty poor. Uh, it was one of Google's biggest failures, I think. The original Google Glass? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, yeah. I think the technology wasn't ready, and also the creep factor was was too high for everyone. That market um, wasn't ready for it. Nowadays, everybody's used to being under surveillance. I think. I guess, although I still think a glass rollout would probably meet the same yuck factor. Uh, although, you know, I, I think there is still an appetite for some kind of industrial or business support system, but my guess is it's going to be more uh, voice-driven uh, as opposed to uh, some kind of wearable. Um, I mm. think voice interaction, as as we're seeing, you know, things like ChatGPT with the natural language capabilities coming out, that seems more feasible in these kind of situations than having glasses on your face and some kind of heads-up display that shows yeah. up in, in front of you when you're doing your work. It's, yeah, arguably, if I was looking at something, we're looking at what Apple's supposedly researching augmented reality through glasses, and they're mm -hmm. rumored to be something. Uh, but Apple's also got AirPods, so if you wanted to do it through audio, right. that there exists, right? Yep. Um, yep. And presumably both, right? So at some point, I think we'll see it again, but I think Google has made some missteps lately. Obviously, Google seems to have missed the AI thing almost completely with all very belatedly bringing, you know, an AI LLM to market just this week. And I noticed that, remember when Google released the Tensor ASICs that had been developing to mm -hmm. accelerate AI, and indeed they still use them in most of their internal AI capability and machine learning today. But this week they also announced that they're going to be hosting uh, NVIDIA's Tensor ASICs <laughs> because those are running uh, NVIDIA software. And mm -hmm. people want to run the software that NVIDIA is making available, the API software, so that they can, you know, run the tools that they want against the NVIDIA software, which uses only NVIDIA ASICs. And Google has basically almost been completely displaced out of the AI discussion by NVIDIA and OpenAI and Microsoft. Very interesting. Temporarily. We're still very, very, very early days. So, yeah, yeah. they. I think Microsoft definitely stole a march on them, and, and I'm sure Microsoft executives are high-fiving themselves for having done so, but mm. I, I wouldn't count out Google just yet. <laughs> and AWS. Where's AWS on AI? Yeah, good point. Like, yeah. you know, AWS makes a big thing about never having a team bigger than two pizzas. Well, you can't build AI, <laughs> you know. Uh, and if and you're going to write a team. product description for an AI project, that's not going to work either. So. A lot of uh, AWS's structural things that they've made a big deal about as their core success factors are actually opposed to building a successful AI product. So um, there's going to be some tough times for them to try and turn that around and start developing something in that space. Or even if they acquire it, it's going to be um, cross-cultural or anti-cultural to the way that they currently work. Yeah, we'll see. Mm. All right, uh, moving on. A journalist in Ecuador suffered injuries to his hands and face when he plugged a USB stick into his computer that contained explosives. Uh, the USB stick had been mailed to him. Four other journalists in Ecuador were also mailed USB sticks containing explosive materials, but no one else was hurt. Uh, this definitely seems like a targeted attack, uh, probably meant to intimidate journalists. Yeah, I think the most frightening part about this is that this was actually T4 explosive or RDX, which is usually used in detonators, but is definitely military-grade explosive as far as I understand it. Right. And obviously, the flash drive is or the USB stick gets a five volt charge, and so it's probably just a detonator that's been used in this case. But once the cat's out of bag of these things, it is very possible that we'll see some sort of civilian terrorism about this. People shipping flash drives and stuff like that. Um, but I think the, probably the most valuable use of this is to email it around and scare all your employees into not using USB sticks anymore. <laughs> <laughs> At least ones that don't arrive anonymously in the mail, for sure. Well, uh, not even. Yes. I think you know, the days of USB sticks are long past. And they're so proven as vulnerable that most companies should have disabled USB ports on their laptops, certainly from US insertion and of USB sticks. So I would say, you know, use it as a way to, you know, 
make lemonade here and send it out and say, look, do not put sticks in your thing because, you know, it could blow up. Probably more useful than saying don't do it because I say so. Definitely more useful than that. Yes, yeah. from that perspective, absolutely more useful. Yes, mm. you, you could blow up is, is a pretty compelling message. Uh, moving on, uh, the beleaguered unified communications provider Avaya has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They also secured $780 million in new capital. The company has pledged to reduce its debt by 75%. Uh, I'm not sure if that applies to the new capital they just raised, which is also essentially debt, but they, they say they, they've got a path. Yeah, so they've um, entered into a restructuring support agreement, I believe is what it's called, with court confirmation. So the court has approved the restructuring support agreement. Um, and under the agreement, they've secured an additional $780 million of capital, pledged to eliminate total debt by 75% and so forth and so on, right? And they were yep. expected to complete the process in 60 to 90 days and come back out. Um, my understanding is, and I just want to be careful about how I say this, is Avail was lumbered up with 3 to $4 billion of debt about six or seven years ago in private equity. Uh-huh. And just servicing that debt was basically making them unprofitable. So a private equity company bought them, stripped out all of the good stuff, sold off the high profit stuff, lumbered them with a bunch of debt, uh, of which it made money on, and then sold the company back by through a listing. But Avaya was basically paying so much money and interest on the bonds that it couldn't possibly survive. But going into Chapter 11, I believe most of the bonds have been wiped, shareholders have been wiped, and they've secured $780 million of funding to be able to continue operating as usual. So mm-hmm. there is a chance, maybe, that Avaya does have a long-term plan here selling voice stuff. Yeah, I guess. I mean, if you've got that much debt, chapter 11 is a way to shed it. But I think it also, if I was a potential investor, I'd be like, I just saw all those folk get wiped out. Maybe I'm going to hold off on Avaya and, and, and see what happens. So it's, yeah, it's so a tough. I imagine tough... it'll go into rent extraction and somebody will look to get their money back, you know, in a pretty short interest. But I don't feel like Avaya's got a long-term strategy. The, the future is really around Zoom and uh, teams and WebEx, perhaps, and whether Avaya can build that product back into something that's a you know full-on conferencing solution that's viable. But there's a lot of companies out there still with Avaya call centers and Avaya PBXs, and you know, right. or using the Avaya conferencing that was sort of a bit you know needs to be more modernized and developed. So hopefully they've got something to to turn that around. Maybe Broadcom will buy them. They seem yeah. to like companies like that. Rent extraction. Maybe doubt it. Broadcom ran into trouble this week. The UK announced that it's very concerned about the rise of prices in VMware products, and they're going to be probably leading to an opposing the Broadcom acquisition. Mm. So, and I think just about everybody feels that Broadcom's going to be, it has to increase prices to get to its goals that it's stated to its shareholders. Right. Really struggling to think that Broadcom's going to get this deal done now. Uh, Apparently, the EU and the US authorities, but the UK has come out strongly against it. So, we will keep an eye on that. All right, one more story before we wrap. Uh, the government of Taiwan's planning to develop its own satellite-based broadband service to ensure it remains connected to the broader internet if China should invade. Uh, Taiwan recently suffered connectivity problems after two undersea cables were cut earlier this year, and the, the Taiwanese government has blamed Chinese fishing vessels for the cuts. Yeah, I think the story here is that uh, Starlink have shot themselves in the foot, particularly <laughs> Elon Musk. Um, why would the government of Taiwan suddenly start wanting to build its own satellite-based broadband solution to re- ensure it remains connected to the internet? And that's because Starlink has created a gap between its servers and customers when it's operating in war zones, like Russia and Ukraine particularly. Right. And uh, Starlink has weighed an ar- arbitrary decision to not work in Russian-occupied areas, even though, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk and, you know, Crimea are absolutely Ukrainian. Starlink says, we don't work in those countries. And 
Now the Ukrainian military, who have become dependent on Starlink to to operate its forces, is now stuck. So if you're a government and looking at a foreign government, effectively somebody like Elon Musk and an organisation like Starlink, which is unpredictable and may make decisions that go against your interest, then I would want to be building my own satellite network independent of these private, private companies. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Now, of course, the Chinese military just over the last two months has been actively digging up cables uh, or believed to be digging up fiber optical cables and breaking them between the Taiwanese islands as an exercise and general harassment and the Chinese being sort of aggressive towards Taiwan. And so I believe that what's actually happening is Taiwan is announcing that they can't trust Starlink and or any others, and they're going to plan its own satellite network in case of invasion. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I mean, Taiwan's case in particular, looking at Starlink and Elon Musk with his ties to China, he's very reliant on China for a lot of his business. This makes perfect sense for them to want to do it. Uh, How they do it is going to be different. I can't imagine them wanting or being able to launch thousands of satellites like the Starlink or the, uh, you know, Amazon's Project Kuiper program are doing. So maybe just a few sort of geosynchronous satellites, but again, that has its own vulnerabilities. Hmm. If, you know, China certainly is probably capable of shooting down satellites if it needs to. So yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how they're going to get out of this, but I'm curious to see where they go. Uh, It wouldn't be too hard. They've only got to put coverage around Taiwan and then create linkages to other pop points, right? I think it'll be lots of microsatellites, like what we're seeing with Starlink. It'll be something similar to that, but they don't need to cover the entire earth to make money out of it because they just need it to cover Taiwan. So they only need it to be in a specific orbit, you know, Mm -hmm. that covers Taiwan and then a couple of other orbits to be downlinks to, say, Australia and Japan and the US mainland and the Europe and so forth. So I think it's going to be, they don't have to build out to the sort of 10,000 satellites that Starlink's heading towards, much more like 500 to 1,000, which would be much more cost-effective and doable. And now that the the market has become quite saturated. So the cost of building satellites is dropping dramatically. The cost of launching satellites is falling you know, dramatically, especially for these small satellites. Certainly should be much more doable, say, in three to five years. Yeah, and the article we're linking to also notes that uh, Taiwan is making a lot of the components for these satellites, so they sort of already got some supply chain capability uh, in country. Yeah, and it also means you're not dependent on Elon Musk. I think Starlink is shooting <laughs> right. itself in the foot with its rather... You know, Elon Musk is becoming rather erratic these days. A capricious, mechanical CEO yeah, is not well, a good thing. Yeah, Let's just say erratic and, and not predictable. And he makes decisions about his businesses based on his political beliefs. And then see, he owns those companies outright. And he would not be seen by governments as a rational actor, I don't believe. And so this is the sort of outcome. So we're actually going to see some governments in competition with Starlink, which is actually bad for Starlink. They would be much better just being a vanilla on the side saying, we're just a carrier. We're just doing our thing. Yep. All right. As always, links in the show notes if you want to go read up more. Uh, thank you for listening. Please do stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're talking about uh, Secure Access Service Edge. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, we're going to get into SASE or the Secure Access Services Edge. SASE combines SD-WAN with cloud-delivered security services. Now you can integrate SD-WAN and cloud-delivered security from different vendors but Palo Alto Networks is here to make the case for why you might want to consider a single vendor approach. Our guest is Don Meyer. He is Director of Product Marketing for Prisma SASE. And Don, welcome to the podcast. So the SASE space is still fairly new. Are you still in the evangelization explanation phase with customers or has the conversation started to change around SASE? 
ultimately we saw about 24 months ago, the conversation was really centered around, hey, there's this thing called sassy. And people say sassy, what the heck is that? <laughs> they they, they kind of heard about it, but it wasn't really a thing for them at the time. Obviously there were other pressing issues. Uh, I had to connect their remote users or transitioning to a, mostly a full-time remote work staff. They had to transition a lot of their infrastructure into cloud. So they had really, you know, very fixed problems that they were trying to solve. And the sassy thing seemed kind of elusive. So 24 months ago, we're saying, hey, this is real. This sassy thing can really help. Um, and if done right, you know, you can start to build a, a good foundation to help you transition into this, you know, remote workforce full-time thing. You can transition into, you know, more of the cloud initiatives that you're doing. That was 24 months ago. Today, interestingly enough, and we're seeing this manifest itself in a number of ways, but the biggest part of it is the macroeconomic challenges that we're all kind of facing. We're seeing that organizations struggling to do more with less are really turning to, okay, we get it. Sassy is the thing we need. Mm. How do we, how do we get started? We're, what's, yeah. what's the right architecture? What's the right approach? So I look at Sassy as a convergence in security. A lot of security features are today products. So you go out and you buy a threat protection and threat prevention. You go out and buy a data loss prevention tool. You go and buy a logging tool, user authentication right. or zero trust, you know, and all of a sudden you've got like 20, 30, 40 tools and you're trying to build them together and unify them. I sort of see Sassy as a step to saying you don't need to have a separate tool for all of those. You can use a single platform. And this is where Paolo's done a great job. You've gone from firewall, application firewall with threat capabilities and saying, well, why don't we cloud enable some of that and then SD-WAN some of that and then all the security stuff and let's start putting it all together into one single platform. Yeah, exactly right. And I think, you know, to your point, there is still kind of that perception in the marketplace that, you know, best of breed equates to a single standalone thing. And so we're mm. still seeing organizations struggle with that, even on the SASE front. Um, there are a number of vendors out there, and I'm going to put in quotations that use a quote SASE narrative when they're talking about their products. Um, SASE, to your point, is the convergence of networking and security into a singularity, which means that these are functions that are fully integrated should be managed from a single council should provide a consistent set of outcomes. Um, however, that's not always the case, depending on who it is that you're, you know, purchasing your SASE solutions from. And we've seen a number of vendors offer bits and pieces. Um, yeah. There is some cloud delivered this or some SD-WAN that, and they're telling the customers, Hey, yeah, go ahead and deploy that but it's up to you to integrate it to the rest of this stuff. <laughs> and pretty yeah. soon we're right back to where we started. We've got these kind of siloed solutions that are doing very important things for us, but it's, it's not necessarily delivering the value that SASE is promising in terms of really alleviating that complexity, driving better outcomes. And we don't think that, you know, from Palo Alto's perspective, that's the right approach. We think that Fundamentally, you should start with an approach that is a fully integrated solution, SD-WAN, mm -hmm. networking, plus all the security services. And on top of that, because yeah. experience is so critical to the success of your overall solution, you have to integrate some kind of digital experience monitoring or what we call ADEM or Autonomous Digital Experience Management Solution to the underlying infrastructure. So that end to end, you can see not only how is everything performing, are we getting the right policies in forced, you know, but how is the overall user experience? And if there's a problem, can we look at that last mile, which we don't own all the way to the application and see where that potential problem is? And more importantly, how can we remediate it?
So what I really think is happening here is that SASE is about this operationalization, this idea that operating it is the day two. Years ago, we used to look at things as day zero. I need features and functions and speeds and feeds. And then day one came along, which was how quickly can I deploy this? How easy is, you know, zero touch, touch provisioning? But now it's really moved to day two. How do I operate this? How do I get long-term value? Now, part of this is this shift to subscription licensing and having to prove that your product is delivering value every month, you know, or every purchase order interval. But also it's actually important to people now to say like, if I'm going to make a hundred changes a day to this network, to this SD-WAN, if I'm going to have security fully integrated and doing its thing, I can't just fire and forget. I can't just deploy it and walk away from it anymore. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, taking that point a little bit further as well, yeah, I can't just continue to do these things in silos where there could be conflicts or that could mm -hmm. create some kind of potential, you know, policy violation or something along those lines. These two things have to be aligned. And if it's one thing the cloud has taught us is that tools when they're done right, a centralized dashboard, when done right, can be a mm. very effective tool for mitigating a lot of complexity, for uh, providing a lot more flexibility and a lot more agility to the organization. So when things mm. do come up, when a pandemic hits and we're forced to scramble to do things, if I have a central point of view on things and I had things talking to each other and sharing information and giving me a clear view of what's really going on, well, I can make better decisions and I can make them more effective quicker and move my business in the direction that it needs to go. And that's ultimately, I think, the yeah. value that SASE can bring. Well, let me ask you, you're talking about a centralized dashboard. Are we talking about one place where I'm doing my SD-WAN, the networking stuff? I'm also setting my security policies and also I'm looking at end-to-end uh, -end performance from the digital experience management portion? That is the ultimate goal. And unfortunately, it's not an elusive goal. That's something here at Palo Alto Networks that we've been investing very, very heavily in and are actually bringing a lot of that to market right now. Yes, we have a centralized dashboard where you can see your SD-WAN deployment. You can see your policies, how they're being enforced, what traffic is coming from what branch networks, how all of that traffic from an experience perspective is being monitored and more importantly, being affected so that if there is a an issue reaching a particular application or if there's an issue in a particular node for processing, we can resolve that and redirect traffic to the appropriate either hop or wherever it needs to go. So this notion of a single vendor approach sort of, I mean, kind of flies in the face of what kind of was the recommendation in some ways for IT in the past in that best of breed is the way to go because, you know, vendor A might have the firewall capabilities I need. Vendor B might have the SD-WAN that I need. Vendor C is doing this cloud delivered security thing that looks good to me. So I'm better off one, you know, from a competitive perspective, playing them off each other, you know, in terms of how much I'm spending and so on. And two, I'm getting what I need from each vendor. So, but you're saying that you're making an argument that that's not the way to go anymore. Yeah, I would argue against that mode insofar as that when we went down that path and we, gosh, we've seen that over the past 20 years, you, know, you go into a security operations center in a large enterprise organization. Um, they have a limited staff. Um, they've got unlimited alarms and alerts going off all the time. There's <laughs> log files that they got to compile and, and dig through. They're using, you know, some type of uh, SIM tool. They're using uh -huh. other tools to try and make sense of it all. And they still are getting breached and they're still having trouble and they're still struggling trying to figure out what's the right policy adjustments we need to make to be able to get the right outcomes we're looking for. 
impossible to do that when you have 50, 60 disparate, different solutions that all are managed by their own management council that have their own policy constructs that have their own schemas in terms of how they function in, in, in operate. Can't, be agile. You cannot move quick enough when you're constantly having to dump a ton of money into just parsing through logs. What a a fully integrated solution is going to help us to do is to alleviate that complexity. It's going to give us commonality, which is a very important first step, right? If we can standardize on a set of logs, we can standardize on a set of of context or contextual bits of information. What it makes it a little bit easier for us to really understand what's going on uh, with a fully integrated SASE solution, such as what we offer with Prisma SASE, you have a common data lake, you have a common policy construct, you have common features and functionalities across all of the different networking and security functions, which makes the job of a an IT admin that much easier. And that's an important part is you don't want to be at work for more than eight hours a day. And one of the things about SASE and this automation and orchestration and single points of control does mean you can do more work remotely and you not lose control. Like in Five years ago, 10 years ago, you had to be in an office in the knock or in front of your console, which you couldn't see remotely easily. And now we have the tools to be able to be, you're just as uh, capable in monitoring the state of your SASE network or your WAN or your off-prem cloud as well, because SASE also includes your off-prem cloud like AWS and Google as much as your on-prem, right? So it's- You're just as effective remotely as you are as if you're in the office. And I think that's an underrated part of this. And more importantly, too, now we can start to take advantage of things like machine learning or artificial intelligence and start looking at ways that we can automate some of these things, right? So if we can start to take the mundane tasks, those day-to-day rudimentary things that we're bogged down with, Mm -hmm. automate some of that because the data now is standardized. I don't have to scrub it. I don't have to try and figure out and parse through it how to make it you know, uh, understandable in different environments. I have a standard set of data. I can run it through different algorithms and I can start spitting out the right types of actions that I need to partake. And then I can trust it to my AI powered, you know, <laughs> operation center, if you will, <laughs> and let it start performing some of those functions. And that's another benefit that you get when you can standardize across the board on this kind of fabric approach, if you will. So we've yeah. been introducing different AI ops tools, one in particular around our ADEM solution, which will actually help to auto remediate uh, certain uh, situations that could be affecting uh, end user overall performance. Okay, that's interesting because in the ADEM space where I think we're particularly talking about remote users, there's so many things that could be affecting the application experience. It could be, you know, the local Wi-Fi strength, the ISP link, it could be a problem at the SaaS provider or wherever the app is being hosted. And with ADEM, because you can monitor right on the client and measure end-to-end performance, you get a better view of what's happening. But the other side of that is that it also generates a ton of data that when you're troubleshooting, you have to look through. So you're saying by having this common data lake, this common, um, you know, view into the data, I can sift through that more easily or let the the system sift through that more easily. Exactly right. And then it gets compounded when you bring branch offices into the mix, right? Because mm-hmm. branches are still a big part of the enterprise footprint, if you will. And transformation on the branch is still happening, you know, whether that is direct to cloud or whether it's, you know, into these, these open spaces for, uh, for a different set of, of users those transactions at the branch are just as legitimate. And there are different challenges when, you know, trying to provide a a, a robust experience at the branch office. That's 
consistent, ubiquitous, or at least online with what you get on campus. So yeah, there's a whole different set of things that we're looking at from the branch perspective to get that level of visibility. Well, no, mm-hmm. I got to go deploy a bunch of sensors in the branch offices and I got to try and tie those sensors back into my thing. I got to parse those sensors logs into my data lake and try and make sense of all this stuff. Eesh, big nightmare. One of the parts that we don't often talk about here is a unified security policy. This is still a security solution. So because I have a centralized control and I can create a policy that uh, that applies to the SASE, that actually can be propagated to every device in my system. Whereas today, if you're using a more traditional SD-WAN approach, some of them are manual, right? You'll yes. still have to go and apply access lists or some sort of whitelist for everything. In oh, yeah. the case of Palo SASE solution, it's just like, this is my policy, allow everybody to get access to Microsoft Office 365 online. And boom, it's consistent everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And to expand that from the branch to the campus networks. Yeah, the hard part is, is with a lot of organizations who are going down the sassy path, a lot of the solutions that are out there are different from what they have perhaps deployed on-prem. And now, you know, as much as we talk about the cloud, cloud is, is this huge, huge part of what the enterprise infrastructure footprint is going to be going forward and still is going forward. Mm. But prem isn't going away. It's changing, but it's not going away. So if I have stuff on-prem, how do I get a consistent outcome? How do I get consistent policies? How do I get that consistency with regards to, you know, mitigating risk? I can extend it now to my branch offices, my remote users, but as soon as they come on campus, well, now I got a whole different set of security tools that are different and the outcomes could be different and and so on and so forth. With Palo Alto Networks, because our underlying infrastructure is consistent, whether it's Mm. a hardware form factor or a VM form factor or now a cloud form factor, that underlying security construct is the same thing. The policies are the same. The the services that we're utilizing are the same. So we can create this kind of holistic, ubiquitous experience, irrespective of if the user works from home 100% of the time, or if the user migrates from a home office to Starbucks to a branch office or to the corporate campuses in all points in between. And that is, again, something that's really interesting that a lot of organizations are starting to perk up to, to say, hey, that's important because we know um, the experience that a user gets on-prem should be consistent with what they're getting uh, at home or at the branch offices. And with a lot of other solutions, unless they're tying all that stuff together and they're having that that commonality with regards to services and constructs and policies and context, it's impossible to be able to deliver. I'm curious if you're seeing customers because, you know, SASE with its tie into SD-WAN sounds like kind of just a branch oriented solution or a remote access oriented solution. Are you seeing customers also integrate SASE into their, their campus or headquarter networks as well? Yeah, especially as we're seeing, you know, the explosion of different applications that we're now bringing to market. A lot of organizations have been augmenting a lot of the stuff they're using in SaaS with different applications that are specific to whatever functions they're trying to solve for on, you know, in in their environments. And so opening up those different environments, whether they're a premises-based data center or whether it's an Azure data center or, you know, any other cloud provider, it can get a little bit interesting. And to bring kind of the SD-WAN capabilities into these different environments where we can leverage, you know, more cost effective uh, telecommunication links, broadband links, what have you, uh, and still get the same type of quality service, still get the same guarantees, you know, we can still tag the same type of traffic and, and prioritize the things that we want to. 
it's, it's advantageous for a lot of organizations. And we've built a robust portfolio of appliances, both virtual and physical, that can be deployed in a variety of different branch offices as well as data center environments. So yeah, we are definitely seeing there is an interest in bringing those same types of capabilities because it's cloud delivered and it's cloud managed. And I don't have to really bring a lot of people on prem or into these different environments to have to manage these things. Uh, it's, it's a big time saver. Plus it's, it's a big cost effective kind of uh, opportunity for a lot of organizations. So yeah, we're definitely seeing it. Okay. So one more question before we wrap, we've sort of alluded to a little bit with the mention of data lakes and a common data format. And we, I think we did touch on AI, but are there, are, I assume that Palo Alto Networks is also leveraging all the data and information they're collecting to bring AI into the mix? We're looking at AI very, very broadly, definitely from an AI ops perspective, right? Trying to help alleviate some of the the operational challenges and complexities, but also as we look at how the threat landscape is evolving and the tools that are now available to the bad guys that are out there, um, they're starting to leverage AI a lot more too. And one of the key things that we've been discovering painfully is that you cannot combat AI by trying to do the same things, right? By, by throwing more and more technology at it. Um, the best way to combat AI is with AI. Um, and so we started to incorporate AI into some of our threat prevention capabilities. Uh, we were one of the first to bring to market AI powered threat prevention, which gives us the opportunity to start looking at uh, zero day attacks. Um, what is a telltale sign of an attack? If we see, you know, a payload that comes into an environment or is going towards a, a server or an endpoint, we don't know what it is and we don't recognize it as something we haven't seen before. We'll send it out. We'll, we'll explode it. We'll figure out what it's doing. And then in real time, we won't block that traffic, but in real time, we'll analyze what's going on and figure out the best way to mitigate any type of malicious activity that we see. We do that in real time. Um, we're expanding those capabilities to start looking at one of the more pressing issues, which is around phishing and man in the middle phishing attacks. Uh, we're leveraging AI algorithms to help us identify uh, telltale signs of not only malicious sites, uh, but how men in the middle attacks are propagated, especially modern men in the middle attacks. Uh, and we're leveraging these different algorithms to mitigate these again in real time without impacting performance or completely outright blocking different legitimate sites that might have uh, some nefarious uh, activities that are in, in some of the underlying undertones there. Um, so absolutely AI is one of the most important aspects of evolving kind of that security narrative and that security capability. But we are doing AI across the board. So we're looking at how do we implement AI for URL filtering? How do we look at AI for IPS? How do we look at AI for all these other capabilities that we have so that we can augment all of those capabilities and make them more intelligent? The thing about AI is that it's going to be smarter than the traditional ways, you know, like a threat team finds something and, and then adds it or you monitor a bunch of other threat researchers. AI will be much quicker to recognize patterns and perhaps add something to a list or flag it up to threat researchers more quickly. So it's really that operational acceleration is the same way as you get anywhere else, really. hundred percent. So it's, you know, it is reducing the complexity. It's making us, you know, uh, able to respond a lot faster, but it's also having a huge impact on what is unknown out there and how do we resolve from unknown to known to blocked in a really, really fast amount of time. So yeah, there's a lot okay. of benefits there. And again, having a fully integrated system, you can tap into that yep, in a much sure. more effective way. 
All right. So we are at the end of our time. If folks want to find out more about what Palo Alto is doing with Sassy, where should they go? Yeah, come join us over at paloaltonetworks.com. Uh, we have a ton of activity that's going on on the Sassy front, including uh, an event that's going on on April 5th of this year, uh, where we're going to be unveiling not only some of the things that we were talking about today, but a whole lot more in, in capabilities and innovation. So please check us out, paloaltonetworks.com. All right. Well, thank you, Don, for joining us. And thanks to Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Sponsorship makes it possible for Packet Pushers to do what we do. If you like this podcast, you can find many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers, hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.